Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Matt Mitchell, the running editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. All right. This week on the show, I'm excited to share my conversation with trail runner and filmmaker Jeff Peltier, whose work I have been absolutely inhaling this winter when not a ton of races are happening and I can't get up into the mountains just yet. After getting really into ultra distance trail running about a decade ago, Jeff took his background in video production and started making some unique and incredibly bingeable point of view style films that chronicle his experience racing and adventuring around the world, which he then upload to YouTube. His channel now has over 60,000 subscribers and includes content like daily training vlogs, gear reviews, and a whole lot more really good stuff. One of the reasons I wanted to have Jeff on is to talk about how YouTube is helping grow the sport of trail running and how his videos in particular are reaching and bringing in new audiences. If you haven't checked out any of his work before, it might be a good idea to hit pause on this episode and pop over to his YouTube channel, which I'll link in this episode show notes. Just make sure to come back. But before we get into our conversation, I just want to say that if you're enjoying listening to the conversations I've been having on this show and find yourself wanting to get more into trail running yourself, I'd encourage you to sign up for a Blister membership so you can send us an email and get my personal recommendations to help you find the right pair of running shoes. Check out the link in the show notes for more info on that, as well as all the other benefits becoming a Blister member gets you. Also, if you've been enjoying the conversations I've been having on this show, please do us a favor and leave us a rating or review. Little things like that go a long way in supporting the podcast. Okay, let's get right into my chat with Jeff. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So I wanted to have you on to talk about your filmmaking, which... I've been uh, watching quite a bit lately, kind of taking an off season from running and uh, watching some of your race recaps and destination races is a great way for me to kind of build energy heading into 2023. So I thought we could kind of start off by uh, discussing a little bit about your background and how you got into trail running and and how you kind of combined filmmaking um, to make the content you do. Sure. Well, I starting with the filmmaking side, I've I've kind of been a filmmaker all my life, um, you know, since high school and I'm in my early 40s now. So quite a while. Um, and I've been a, vi- a professional video producer uh, pretty much my entire working uh, life, um, kind of doing like corporate video and stuff. Um, but I, I, I really haven't wasn't an athlete at all growing up. Um, definitely not in my 20s. It was really I think it was when I turned 27 that I started running and it was it was one of these things where a buddy mentioned that he was training for a marathon. And I thought, yeah, that sounds kind of cool. I think he had Hell Higdon's, you know, run yep. walking marathon training book. And um, and I thought, well, if he can do it, maybe I can. And that's kind of what started me off on this running journey. It was almost just a bucket list thing. But I, I went on to do a couple more seasons of that. And I ended up meeting some guys who were trail running. And I thought, well, that sounds neat. And, and um, so I kind of did my first trail running race when I was 30. And the rest is history. You know, you meet different people and and you think you hear about ultra marathons and then and then you hear, oh, if, you know, if, if you think that's crazy, what do you hear about 100 milers? And and it just goes on and on from there. Um, so I've been trail running for, you know, going on um, 11, 12 years now. And uh, it wasn't really until 
um, a few years in when the cameras started getting like, you know, GoPro had been introduced and the can, the quality started improving to a point where I, I, I actually started carrying them on my runs and doing a bit of filming. Um, I think with the release of the GoPro six was kind of when I really started making my first films. Um, so fairly recently, um, cause it just, as a, especially as a professional video producer, it didn't feel like the cameras, I mean, I wasn't going to bring a big camera on the trails, uh, but the little cameras, the quality just wasn't there. And so I think it was just kind of that, you know, crossover where the gear got smaller and better. And I started filming my runs without really much intention at first. It was kind of just, you know, making some short videos and um, really the first kind of film that I, I published that had a lot of success was from Tour de Jean, a race that I did in uh, 20, um, let's see, that was 20, 2018. And um, that was kind of the start of my YouTube channel. Like I had published a few short things before that, but that was the first one where I thought like, hey, you know what, maybe there's a, maybe there's an audience for this. And it's kind of been growing ever since. Cool. And where did you kind of discover trail running? Where are you from? Uh, where did you kind of fall in love with it? Right. Okay. Well, of course, I'm I'm born and raised in Vancouver, Canada. Um, so you know we're lucky to have some beautiful mountains right here. We got ocean, we got mountains, and some pretty unique trails. You know, it's a rainforest. Um, so it's uh, you know it's rooty, it's rocky. We have we have elevation. You know, it's some beautiful views. Um, so there's no there's no you know, we don't lack for inspiration on the trails here. Um, and so when I started training, when I started trail running, I was training, I was training at this, this gym that was kind of for triathletes and I was doing some VO2 max testing and things there. And a few of the guys, as I mentioned, were trail running, they were doing ultras and that's what kind of led me into it. So pretty quickly I fell into doing some local trail races. Um, there, there already were a couple of different race series at the time. And there's tons of races now, of course. Um, and so it was kind of getting involved with the community and meeting a bunch of people. And, and again, it's that influence, right? Where people are inviting you out to events and inviting you out to runs and you can, it really expands your horizons. But I think right away, I, I had always, you know, while I wasn't very athletic, I had always enjoyed the outdoors. Um, I was in scouts growing up and did a lot of camping. So this idea of kind of like trail running being a mix between, I don't know, it's kind of like athleisure, like it's sport, but it's not just sport. There's more to it. You know, it's adventure. It's, it's getting outside. It's, it's enjoying the uh, nature. I think that's what really, um, made it like a lifelong commitment and passion for me where I don't think road running would have had that staying power for me. Um, and so, yeah, being here in Vancouver, I, I now live on the North shore. We call it in North Vancouver. I'm literally a kilometer less than a mile from the trailhead that takes me straight up a mountain so it's it's right in our backyard now oh man do you get a chance to run kind of year round oh yeah yeah we run we run year round although i did recently a few years back take up ski touring as a way to kind of get up into the mountains in the winter because you know that this this year has been quite warm the last few weeks but typically we have snow above I don't know, 1000 meters, maybe. Um, so, so you end up having to just stick to the lower trails. And so ski touring gets me up into the mountains, um, year round. Um, but, uh, this year, um, unfortunately for our skiing, but fortunate, it's fortunate for our running. We're, we're able to do a lot more, uh, on the trails than we normally would. Gotcha. Yeah. I guess when I think of Vancouver and I, when I think of trail running there, I think of Gary, Gary yeah. Robbins. Do you get a chance to, to link up with him pretty frequently? Yeah, for sure. I mean, Gary's a busy guy. I'm, I'm a busy guy too. So we, but we definitely get together every few months when we can. Um, and he, he's moved out to an area called Chilliwack, which is out in the Valley. So it's a, a little bit further East. Um, it's a bit of a drive, but that's, um, that's kind of a different area and it's a, it's beautiful. Those are big mountains. Uh, he's right on the border with the U 
US. And so while I'm here up on the coast, he's kind of more inland and it's a little bit more a little more rugged and bigger mountains and you know a little bit closer to something like you'd see in the Alps and that's just a couple of hours away. So I definitely I definitely head out there to to visit him and and get him to take me up on some peaks whenever I get a chance to. Yeah, I've heard those towns are are growing pretty quickly. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely, especially, you know, we have Squamish nearby uh which is on the way to Whistler. Most people have heard of Whistler because of the Olympics. And towns like that are just they're they're bursting at the seams now. Um like a lot of mountain towns in the states. Um so it's yeah, they're getting more expensive. Chilliwack, where Gary moved out to, is expanding quite quickly. Um, and the profile of people is changing. You know, it's it's a lot of people like ourselves moving out there for the trails, right? For access, for biking, skiing, and, and running. So, uh, yeah, so it's pretty exciting times. Um, and unfortunately, the, the costs are also going up right. here, like in many places of the world. But, you know, we, we pay for access. Uh, we pay for access to the, to the trails, and, and the access is really good. Of course, we don't have the gondolas like you do in, in Europe. Here, it's this it's access to pure wilderness in most cases. Like, it's really rugged here, which is, which is cool. Yeah. Jumping back a little bit. So before you started making these running films, when you were working maybe more commercially, what did that kind of consist of? Yeah. And I still do. So I I run an agency. Um, I've had my business for uh, more than 18 years now. And uh, so we do, yeah, we do like corporate communications. It's a lot of training videos and things. And over the years, this has grown for me to be a little bit more of a kind of more of a part-time thing. You know, I've got a really good team in place and I sort of just manage the team. But uh, it's been years since I got to touch a camera and to kind of get into the, to do the work. And then, and the work is what I enjoy. That's why I got into this business. So I think I, I right away saw an opportunity for making trail running films as a creative outlet, you know, for getting back to my roots of storytelling and filmmaking and sort of what, you know, what drove me into this business. It, it wasn't working with businesses. It was making films, telling stories. And so that's kind of what's really appealed to me now. So um, fortunately, I'm, I have a bit of the I have time and I have a flexible schedule, more importantly, because I do control my own schedule. And that's what's allowed me to do more traveling and things now than in the past where, you know, previously I was for me a nine to five job. And it's only in the last sort of call it five years that I've uh, that's changed for me. And so it's uh, it's kind of a whole new world for me now where I can work remotely and I can travel most of the year if I want to. What was it like to like kind of decide to start posting stuff on YouTube and like grow an audience on that platform. Cause I think that's like yeah. in terms of growing trail running as a sport, YouTube is so invaluable because it gives people perspectives into what like mid packers experience like during UTMB, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm curious like how you kind of grew that and like the difference between like a proper film and like a YouTube video. Yeah. And there's definitely, there's a few things in there we could, we could talk about right. the, I mean, the first sort of, I, I, I didn't, I didn't sort of, um, gravitate towards YouTube with a plan. You know, I didn't start posting videos thinking I'm going to grow a channel. It really was just a place to post a couple of videos I had made. And, uh, over the years, I, I actually had done a one film from even previously that I think it's got to be 12 or 13 years old now from when I did a trek in Nepal. And that video has got like 2.3 million views or something. It's crazy. Um, and it's paid for that trip multiple times over just from the ad revenue. Uh, but that was just something I did for fun. I, while I was filming it, I wasn't even sure 
if I was going to make a film. I was just kind of capturing some footage. And then it wasn't really again until I, when I did my first 200 miler toward Dijon in the Italian Alps. It's the most incredible race. And it happens to be one of the more popular races. And I, and I decided to make a film. I was like, I'm going to capture this just for my own sake, if anything. And I want to tell a story. Um, and when I posted that film, it got really good results. I mean, I think that one as well is up to close to half a million views. But even even getting 20 or 30,000 initially was huge for me at the time for my my little channel. And it was then when I realized, you know, maybe I do have something to offer the community, right, with with this, this kind of storytelling. And I think for me as well, it was the the way that I had been, you know, being a shooter, being a videographer my entire life, the camera work comes second nature to me. And so I can do that when I haven't slept for three days and I'm, you know, in the worst state possible, I can still be filming because that part's easy. That part comes, I don't have to think about it. If anything, it helps me sometimes. It helps me. It's a, it's a, it's a good distraction, right? It gives me kind of a purpose a secondary purpose and, and, and another reason to to finish and do really hard things, right? Because I, I want to tell a good story. And it was, you know, I think after posting that video um, that I realized, well, you know, the next year I did Swiss Peaks 360K. And so I thought, okay, I'll film this one too. And again, it was a very organic process of just putting myself out there a little bit, getting very positive feedback and kind of doing more and more and doubling down. And from that, people started asking questions like, well, how, how do you train for a race like this? What does recovery look like? What shoes did you wear? And that's what led me into doing some of the kind of reviews and sort of the how-to videos. And uh, last year, I did a series that I called my Training Diary series. Um, and I was a little bit kind of like, you know, I'm not an expert, right? I'm still learning, you know, and I'm not a coach. I'm not, I have no formal education in physiology. Um, but at the same time, people were asking questions. And so my approach has always been like, here's what works for me. But again, it's been very organic. I'm just kind of responding to the questions that are out there and just sort of building on the, you know, the success of the previous video. So that's kind of been what's working for me. And it's primarily been these, these sort of what I would call evergreen films. Like that's a marketing term, meaning I'm not doing like a lot of reviews. It's mostly these these um, these key races that I do kind of once or twice a year, and I document Tour de Jean, Swiss Peaks, UTMB. Most recently, um, they're almost like documentary format. I'd like to think like they're a little bit they're longer format. I'm I'm pushing the length now to over an hour, um, and I'm really structuring them like like a like a like a film. In some cases, even like a TV show with doing multiple episodes, and um, I see that being a little bit different. I, I am publishing it to YouTube, but I'm not. I'm trying to avoid it feeling like a YouTube video. Um, and I think I'm, I'm, I'm trying to walk the line there. And that's, I think, maybe led to some some of the success I've been having and some of the positive feedback. Um, you know, it doesn't feel like a YouTube video. It feels like a film. And uh, I think in that way as well, I'm trying to create a bit of longevity where if YouTube as a platform, you know, if we move on to something else, then I could do that. And my storytelling would translate to Netflix even or something, I guess, if... I don't know if I was ever asked, right? So, because um, I think at the end of the day, it's about story and it doesn't matter what platform we're on. And there's a reason why 
TV shows start with a 30 second teaser to get you hooked on the story. I mean, those, those formats, those tropes, they work and, and they're used for a reason, no matter what the platform. Right. Like your videos are not vlogs by any means. Like they feel like very, in in some ways they are vlogs, but like they, they have a lot more like thought and structure and like intention behind them. Like getting to what you're saying about storytelling, you know, there's a narrative arc. There's not just kind of like a lot of material dumped into the screen. And I should, I should clarify, I do, again, last year I started doing this training diary series, which to me feels more like a traditional vlog. So now, but right. when I, when I make a video, I am trying to be very intentional about, is this a vlog or a film? And I think there's, there's probably room for both. So, but again, my, my sort of vlogs are more like supporting the totally. films. It's like content in between the, cause you know, it takes me a few months to get, usually to get a film out. So it's sort of almost, almost filler content, but it keeps the audience engaged. And I think it also you know, I can talk, I can give you a preview. I can talk more casually about the race experience um, and, and maybe give some details that wouldn't be appropriate in the film. Again, like talking about gear, it, it can disrupt the story. So I totally. try to keep that stuff separately where I can. So, so yeah, so I think it's, I think it's it, exactly that. It's like, it's, it's thinking about there being vlog type content and film type content. And I could almost see one day having my film content somewhere else and then just keeping the vlog stuff on YouTube. Um, I think it's also holding me back a little bit because some of the really successful YouTubers, like the more traditional YouTube uh, creators in the running space, are doing more vlog style content. Maybe they're not spending quite as much time in post-production and they're able to put content out there more regularly, which the algorithm seems to prefer. And so I think I am probably holding myself back a little bit in terms of growth as well. But I look at my films maybe not the vlogs as much, but the films as being like a portfolio and I'm trying to build a portfolio and I want to be able to look back over my running career and be proud of that content that I've created alongside of it. Right. I mean, it gets to the whole idea of like quality over quantity, you know? Sure. Exactly. I I think that like people will reward you for these like highly produced videos more so than, you know, if you released a a 10 minute vlog that kind of seemed like cobbled together every day. But yeah, I mean, I first kind of started watching your channel back when I was working at San Francisco Running Company. Um, One of my coworkers was preparing to run Tour de Giants in Mm -hmm. I forget what year, but he watched your video and was like, you got to check this guy out. So uh, yeah, I've been hooked ever since. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So kind of like dialing more in on how you uh, make these films, like how far in advance do you decide that you're going to like film this race and like how kind of like scripted is it? Like how much preparation goes in before you like tow the starting line? Sure. Well, uh, first of all, I would say this is an evolving thing. And so if, if you would have asked me this two years ago and two, three years ago, I was still sort of reacting and, and sort of thinking, is this, is this something, is this channel strategy, something I want to invest in as far as time goes and money long-term Last year in 2022, I really thought, okay, let's give this a go. Let's really invest. Let's. And so last year, I definitely I was almost choosing my races based on the films like UTMB. I've always wanted to run UTMB, but hey, I also knew that that film would perform well. It just happens to be like the most popular race in the world, right? So, right. Um, and also, I, I started working with um, a company called Racing uh, the Planet. I did I did the Namibia race in October of 2021. I joined them again in the country of Georgia last year and that was a partnership you know we worked out a deal and um so again it was sort of um i didn't i didn't film it as a side thing it's i wouldn't have been there if i wasn't filming it and this year as well i'm partnered with a couple of race directors and we're gonna you know again this year was it was 
So I, I think, I guess to answer your question now, it's moving forward. I'm choosing races with the film in mind. Um, I wouldn't do a race that I wouldn't normally do, but I might prioritize one over another because I know there'll be a good story there. You know, there's some races where I'm, where I look at and think like, yeah, that'd be a fun one to do, but I don't know, like what kind of story would I tell? And again, I love the storytelling as much as the running when it comes to making these race films. So, um, so I am now sort of prioritizing the, you know, the ones that would make for good stories. Um, but for me, that's because good stories also happen to be good experiences and vice versa. So it's, it's choosing destinations that I'm excited about visiting. Um, it's choosing races with a unique history and, and that kind of thing. And then, so usually the, the story is kind of embedded a little bit, you know, it's sort of built in. So I'm heading to England, for example, for the month of June, and this won't be for a race. It's so I can recce and then run um, Bob Graham round. Oh, cool. So I'm going to do that at the end of the month. I'll, I'll have just turned 42 the weekend of the first week of July. And Bob Graham was 42 when he ran it. And it's, I guess, a big thing for people to go and do it when they turn 42. And so it's perfect timing, but I'm going to go over the, go over there for pretty much the whole month and recce. I'm going to fast pack. I want to, I want to do the entire thing. I want to do it right. I want to do a couple of fell races, um, meet a bunch of people, crew for other people, you know, and really, really soak in the culture of fell riding. And of course I'll make a documentary and that documentary will tell that entire process and that story and the history and, you know, I'll interview people. So I've, I'm already thinking about the structure of that film. And I know that the running of, of the Bob Graham round will just be a scene. That'll be the climax when I actually go and make the attempt. But the rest of it is pretty like I already, again, know some of the, the, the different chapters I'm going to I'm going to have in this documentary. Now, I don't know how that run's going to go, but I do sort of know that that's going to be about 10 minutes of the 90 minute film. Probably it's, you know, because I think wrecking it will be the best opportunity to get really good footage. You know, I'll get the drone up in the air and things. Um, and to show people what the course is really like, because I haven't seen a lot of good coverage of the Bob Graham round course. It's a lot of aid stations and it's five minute films, but nobody's really showing the course, you know, and I really want to see that brought to life. Right. So, um, so with that, I'm going to be pretty, I'll be scripting as I go, but I will be scripting. And by the time I go and film it, that'll be the last thing I film. So I think where most people would probably approach that as, the film would open and it would be them starting the Bob Graham round and it would end with them finishing it. For me, that's just a chapter in the story because I think the story really is much bigger than just the run itself, right? It's, it's the entire experience and I get the history and all that stuff. So, so that's sort of like on the extreme end, I think, um, on the smaller end, you know, where I might just go and do a 50 K and sort of film that I am going to plan a little bit in advance, you know, what some of the, what some of the beats might be if I'm going to have, you know, talk about the course at all. I might have that in my head. I'm not going to script it word for word, I, but I am often doing that as I go. So while, while I'm filming, you know, I'm thinking like, okay, like I'm getting, you know, this is actually something that Audrey and I talk about now a lot when we're say before we did UTMB, you know, I, I, we talked about how if she has any problems, cause she's been something I didn't mention was my girlfriend, Audrey is uh, now being featured more in my films, right? She's becoming a character and, and a, a main character in, in the channel. And, and I think people are responding well to that because there's not a lot of female presence on YouTube. And so we talked a lot about how, like, if anything feels like it's off, like if you're developing a blister, you've got to talk about that early because you want to set yourself up for potentially that becoming a problem. If, if three quarters of the way through the race, you have to drop because you have this injury that you've been dealing with but you didn't mention it earlier in the film, it's going to feel like it came out of nowhere from the audience. So, 
you almost have to like film it and talk about it just in case. And if, if it doesn't turn into anything, we won't use the footage. So you're, you're really thinking about kind of the, you know, what, like, what's the drama going to be? What's the story going to be kind of as you're going and you have to step outside of yourself and look at it from that 30,000 foot view. What, so you're in the moment, but you have to think about the moment as well from the context of storytelling um, at the same time. So there's an element of planning and there's an element of figuring it out in the, in the moment, but I'm never not thinking about it from a strategic standpoint. It's never just film a bunch of stuff and, and figure it out later. Usually gotcha. by the time the run is done, I've got the story in mind. I've, I've kind of got it scripted basically already. And I, and I know, I know what, how long it's going to be. And I know, I know what the beats are going to be. And I've kind of shot it for the edit. Can you say more on how that acts as kind of like a helpful distraction, like in the yeah. middle of, you know, tour de giants when you're not seeing straight, but you still have to film? <laughs> so I would say, first of all, it definitely slows me down. There's no doubt that I'm losing time in these races. I don't know how much time. I'll never know. It's impossible to do an A-B test, you know, but uh, definitely it's slowing me down. Definitely it's a distraction. I've made mistakes. I've gone off course while filming, things like that. That's, But at the same time, yeah, as I said, th there are times when I think it helps me. There was a moment in Tour de Jean, it's actually in the film, where we were up on, we were up on this ridge. I'd grouped up with a couple of guys and this, it was four of us actually in this group and this massive storm came in. There was lightning all around us and we were like, let's get the hell out of here. And there was a little emergency bivouac that had been helicoptered up there. So there were some guys in there. They'd set up a little fire pit and they told us, they said, look, you guys should either get in here and shelter or get the hell out of here, but make up your mind now. And so we were like, let's go, let's go. So we booked it down this hill. And of course the hill, when I say hill, I mean 1800 meter drop, right? Everything's huge there. And we just were hauling ass and trying to get out of the storm. And it really took us, took it out of us. You know, we're already two, two and a half days in at this point. And we got to the aid station and everybody was just trashed. And, you know, everybody was going to stop and have a nap. And we kind of said, look, if we, if the timing works, let's, let's go out again together. Let's stay together. If not, it's been fun running together. Um, and it kind of worked out that everybody went down for 25 minutes or so and had a nap. And, and then we went on our way. Um, I did too. I had a nap and I remember getting up and thinking, I got to film this. So I immediately jumped into, okay, I'm getting different angles. I'm filming and you know, I'm, I'm even filming myself pretending to be tired in that moment, you know, and then I was tired to be clear, but I had to set up the camera act essentially grab the camera, get more shots. And I'm, I'm running around. People are like, what are you doing? And it's not that I was less tired. It's just that I was able to kind of hit the pause button on that and go like, okay, I got to go into camera guy mode now, right? Into storyteller mode. Now, I probably could have just slept for an extra eight minutes instead. So that definitely was a sacrifice. But somehow in that moment, it, I don't know, it sort of, it gave me a boost. It gave me energy because I thought I have a project here uh, to finish this race, of course, but I also have this project of telling the story of this race, um, almost a bigger purpose. And um, there was something about that that gave me, it, yeah, it helped me to kind of rally and to, and to get going again. And then you know, even as we're walking away and I'm having to film them coming out of the aid station, like there's, there, there's something about that, that, uh, it's almost like, uh, having a pacer, you know, where it doesn't make you move quicker, but it's, it's an emotional support. And somehow having the camera with me gives me a bit of that emotional support. Man, that's really cool. I can, I can totally see that, how that makes sense though, you know, cause you're not like, you're not so caught up in how bad you feel. You're kind of like very task oriented in the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, so 
I know you did that seven day stage race in Georgia last year. Yeah. Um, what about stage races appeals to you? Like, is there kind of just like more room for story? Yeah. I mean, well, f- at first as a racer, stage race so these 200 mile races are tough tour de jean you know that's an understatement they, yeah they're tough but they're tough in my opinion not because of the distance you train for that um it's because of the sleep deprivation that you can't train for some people handle it better than others i remember in swiss peaks 360 the guy who won it he only slept two hours in the entire you know whatever it took him 80 hours uh, maybe 70 hours and he only slept because they forced him to. I, apparently, he came into an aid station and he looked horrible. He was wobbling. He was, he, you know, he couldn't focus. And they said, no, 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 you're sleeping. You're not leaving here unless you sleep. And they, so they forced him to sleep two hours. Me, I, I, I get to a point where, you know, I'll maybe sleep more like seven or eight hours over the course of 100 hours. And, um, and I'm still, by the end of it, like I can't see straight. My vision is blurry. I'm doing everything I can to stay awake and I'm falling, I'm falling asleep on my feet. I'll lose 20 minutes at a time where I go, wait a second. Like, was I sleepwalking up that mountain? Um, and it's also not great. It's not good for you. It's not good for your health. It's not good for your physical health. And it might not be good for your brain. I don't think we know a lot about, in fact, how bad it potentially is for you. Um, stage racing breaks this up. So now you're doing this hard thing. You're running 200 miles over say five, six, seven days. Um, it's still very difficult, still takes a lot of training, but you're sleeping 10 hours a night. And so you run hard and then you sleep, you run hard, then you sleep. And it becomes more about like playing chess instead of checkers, right? Because you, 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 are always holding a little bit back. It's a series of shorter races, but it's, it's not, it's a, it's, they're all back to back. And so there's, there's more strategy involved. Um, the ones with racing the planet, you also have to carry your own gear for the whole week. So now it's about, okay, I've got to spend a year researching ultralight gear and, and, you know, um, you know, you got spreadsheets and more importantly, the food, because it's a game of how little can I eat? Because of course that's weight without sacrificing my performance. You're trying to walk a line. And again, it's, there's all this strategy, right? There are stage races that where you don't have to carry your own gear. And I think those are, in fact, we are doing one this year. Audrey and I are going to do the Pyrenees stage run. And it's basically going to be like a running vacation compared to those races. We're sleeping in hotels. We're eating buffet dinners at night. Uh, but we'll, we will be running each day and we will be running hard. Um, but I kind of I like the element of self-support because it's it's like fast packing, but in a race format. It's like it's a fast pack race, basically. And uh, there's just so much strategy involved. And, and so that's from a running standpoint, but when it comes to a filmmaking standpoint, it's exactly what you said. There's more room for storytelling. It's not just about race starts, race ends. It's race start, race ends, recovery, meeting other athletes, thinking about how the first day went, changing your plans for the second day. So there's all this room for storytelling in between the stages for kind of buildup of drama um, and that's where I've been experimenting with this episodic format. Cause I also feel like because the race is really a series of races, it also can be a series of videos, um, because that's watching it back. I think in that format is more like how it feels to run it, where it's not again, just one long race. You're in it though, for the whole week. Like you are so focused, you're cut off from the outside world. You are living and breathing this race. But again, you have this 
in between time for better or for worse. Cause it, you can get inside your head. You can, you're watching other runners and seeing how are they feeling? And, oh, that guy that beat me yesterday, man, he's looking pretty good. Like, uh-oh, you know, or this guy's getting blisters. Okay. Maybe he's not going to be quite as competitive the next day. So there's all this other stuff happening. And again, that lends itself so well to storytelling, I think. Um, so I have a second series coming out now, Racing Georgia, which is very similar to my series Racing Namibia. And I'll actually be publishing that here uh, towards the end of February. I think my first episode comes out, uh, let me double check, February 19th, and there'll be seven episodes. Cool. Yeah, we'll definitely include a link to your channel in the, the show notes. Uh, what was Georgia like? I uh, I like have n- like no idea of, no conception of like, what it's like to run over there at all no um, totally i i don't think most people have any idea of what the country's like and that's that's part of what i'm so excited about in this film the, f- the whole first episode will just be uh me traveling around the country i did another another short trail race while i was there that's gonna be in the first in the first episode uh, meeting people i went up to the russian border um george is a crazy country it's really cool it's one of my favorite places i've been so far and i should say like that's my favorite part about racing the planet is they go to places you'd normally probably wouldn't go and they take you to places in those countries you normally wouldn't be allowed to go or you, there's no way you could you could go like in Namibia. Namibia is a pretty popular place to go in Africa, but we were out in the middle of the desert. I mean, I saw stuff that I would have never seen otherwise without a support crew. You know, there's no water out there. You can't survive out there on your own for seven days. Um, and Georgia was the same. We were in the, in the southern region, which is actually largely Armenian. It's a lot of farmers and we were running through farm fields and flocks of sheep and it was, it was like a whole, it was like, you know, these villages were pretty remote and it was like stepping back in time, like a hundred years ago, like people farming with not big tractors. Like these are like small, you know, really small uh, operations and they're nomadic. A lot of the farmers as well. Um, but as a country, Georgia is, I mean, it's a former Soviet union. It was the first, uh, country to establish independence and become an independent state after the collapse of the Soviet union. But historically it's been fought over by everybody because it's at the crossroads between Eastern Europe and Western Asia, as well as the middle East. And so it's got this rich history. Um, it's got churches and monasteries everywhere you look, like everywhere. You're driving on the highway and you're just constantly pulling over to see these historic sites that are as old as the fourth century. And uh, it just got such a rich history. The people are amazing. Um, it's cheap. It's a relatively cheap country. And it's for that reason, it's become a really popular destination for, uh, for digital nomads, for working remotely. You've got Portugal and you've got Georgia right now. Those are the two big spots. As I said, I went up to the Russian border, you know, soaking in this, the, that kind of Soviet history is about as close as I'm going to get to visiting Russia anytime soon. And for most right. people as well. Um, but there's all this cool Soviet history there if you're into that kind of stuff. Um, and the thing about Georgia that most people don't know is they have huge mountains. Right. So the border between Georgia and Russia is the Caucasus, the northern Caucasus. They're over 5,000 meters, some of those peaks, 5,100 meters. So some of the biggest mountains in Europe. And uh, you, can, you can climb and you can ski. They have great backcountry skiing in the winter. They have ski resorts. And in the summer, some incredible hiking. So there's a new trail called the Trans-Caucasus Trail or Trans-Caucasian Trail. And it's gonna, it, once it's completed, it's going to go through Armenia, uh, Azerbaijan, and, and Georgia. And it's going to be incredible. And there's already sections of that going through the mountains right now. So um, definitely watch the series if you want to learn more about Georgia. But 
I kind of say it in the video, like this, this, this destination is not on most people's bucket list, but I hope that it will be by the time you, you finish watching my series. Yeah. My, my friends went there on their honeymoon to go ski. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, oh, uh, said it was just incredible. Like the people were so friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I, I think like getting back to, uh, these adventure races you do, I think like that's such a cool way to use trail running to like explore different areas. And I think something that like a lot of people can relate to because not everyone's trying to be super competitive. Like some people just want to like sign up for a race in Argentina and like explore while they're down there. And I don't think there's like a better way to, to really soak up a country than like running across it, (laughs) large portions of it. It gives you a perspective. I've, I've traveled a lot over the years. Like, you know, I've always loved traveling. And I think something that in the past I felt a little bit sort of um, unanchored when I went traveling. So I think like, what am I doing? Am I trying to, am I going to the main towns? Am I, am I just being a tourist and going to the hotspots? Like, what's my perspective? What's my, and and when I started doing some more hiking, I, you know, I went to Nepal and did a trek and that was the focus of the trip. And I didn't see a lot of Nepal, but I definitely saw a lot of the mountains and that's okay. Like you, you, you can't do everything when you travel. Um, and that's something you learn. I think early on when you try to do too much, it's very superficial. You're way better just going to one city or go to one mountain area do one thing in a country really well. And I think that's where trail running gives you that. You can say, well, I'm going to go and do a big race or do a big adventure. And that's how I'm going to experience this country or this culture or this landscape. And, and that's fine. That's even if that's all you do, it gives you something to ground you on that trip. Otherwise, again, you just try to, you try to do what everybody else does and you try to do it all and you end up doing very little. Right. And I feel like fast packing too is another way to, to accomplish 100%. that. And I know yeah. you have a, a pretty extensive uh, background, um, kind of fast packing around. How'd you get into that? Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I, I'm definitely not the most experienced, but I think I'm, I'm talking about it more than other people on YouTube. I think that it just happens to be the case that, um, that I've, I've done more than a lot of other YouTubers. Say. Right. So I, I would say that I, um, so Fastpacking for me started after doing my first stage run, which was the uh, Grand to Grand in uh, the States. And we run, you run from the edge of the Grand Canyon in Arizona to the Grand Staircase in Utah. Um, it was modeled after Mériton um, de Sable, after MDS, much like the Race in the Planet series was. Um, it's the only self-supported, or at least it was the only self-supported stage race years ago in the U.S. I think there might be one or two others now. It's really difficult. It's, I think, 330 kilometers. You got heat, you got sand, cactuses. Um, it's a tough race, and you're carrying all your gear for the week. I did that in 2015, and that sort of set me on this you know, idea of, wait, I can run with gear. And while they do provide a tent, you have to bring your own sleeping bag. All, all I needed was the, the shelter. And so the following year I did, um, uh, I ran around Mount Rainier on the Wonderland Trail with a, with a buddy. We did it over two days. It's, it's a roughly a hundred mile route. So we did roughly 50 miles a day, slept a couple of hours. Um, and it was, I should, I should say that was tough. I'd recommend doing it over three days. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you you miss a lot of it at night as well. So there was a lot we didn't see, but what a route. And that, that, uh, you know, I had all the gear already, so it made sense. And we, we just, uh, cowboy camped under a tarp that sort of opened my eyes to this idea of being able to do routes that you can't quite run in a day, or maybe you don't want to, because you're going to miss a lot of it and you want to soak it in, but you know, maybe there's no race, there's no race around Rainier. So that leaves you to either 
paying somebody or asking friends to support you or fast packing it. And once you go down that road, it opens up your eyes to a whole world of routes that you can do and you can string together and, and different approaches to doing things. So I really see it as, you know, I see, I see people, some criticism sometimes of fast packing as being like rushing, you know, people say, why rush? So this is coming from a hiking perspective. You know, why, why do the TMB in three or four days when you can do it over 10? Why take your time. And that's valid. But I, I'm not trying to get people to speed up. I'm like, I'm not trying to tell hikers they should run. I'm trying right. to get runners to slow down and say, why force, why run from six in the morning to midnight just to bang out this 60 mile route, split it up over two days and really enjoy it. Right. And take your time and, and, you know, don't, don't run at night. Don't miss these glaciers at night like you do during UTMB. Um, so that's kind of my message is slow down a little bit. Add some adventure to it by being able to do routes that are more remote, where there are no, there is no, there is less support. So you have to be self-supported. Um, but also, I've kind of now been experiencing some of these, some of these fast packing routes, like like the Tour de Mont Blanc, where there's also hut support and there's gondolas and restaurants, and and again, that's a whole other layer. So we don't have much of that here in North America, uh, where it is mostly running through parks and mostly you know in the wild. Uh, but yeah, when you go to, you know, Patagonia or you go to uh, the Alps, um, you can run hut to hut. And now you can run really lightweight because you're only carrying your gear for the day. You have no, no camping gear. Yeah. And not and that, only that, that, yeah, that really opens it up. Not only that, but you get treated with like a feast at the end of each oh, day. Yeah. You can do it five star if you want to. Exactly. Just bring your yeah. credit card. Yeah. I think what you said about kind of getting runners to slow down is a great rebuttal that I'm going to use because I get that pushback mm -hmm. all the time. Um, I try and get out to like the Eastern Sierra every year and, and go for a, a fast packing trip with a friend. And uh, yeah, we get like pushback saying like you you went over all these amazing passes in the middle of the night and didn't see anything mm -hmm. it's like yes we did but like that that was kind of just part of the experience yeah have, have you had any experience uh fast packing that in that zone no no i um i had a, i had a um a permit for the john muir trail a couple oh. of years back and i'm trying to remember i think that was right before covid I think COVID is what disrupted me, or maybe it was one of the forest fire years. I don't remember. So that's on my list. And I would actually like to do that one solo, um, mostly because it would be easier to get a permit. That was my strategy then and probably will be in the future. But yeah, so the JMT is high on my list. I would probably do it over seven days. Um, I'd like to do some longer through hikes as well. I mean, I'd love to do like the PCT one day and things. But at the same time, I think for me, there's a bit of a limit where I'd, I think I'd rather do three or four shorter ones like week long than to commit to like a three month thing because um, I, it would, it's really hard for me to take that much time off. I can I can be off grid for a week at a time and kind of come back and catch up on work. Whereas for me to take three months off would be so disruptive. It would, um, so I think probably for at least the near term, there's there's no long long stuff in my in my um, near future. But but yeah, I mean there's I have a series of call it three to seven day ones that I'd love to bang out. JMT, um, collegiate loop. Um, I want to, you know, and then these, these kind of more uh, timed based things, Nolan's 14, right. I'd love to do, um, Bob Graham round. And I'd want to fast pack those courses. Hard rock has been a dream of mine since I started trail running. And in the short term, it didn't happen this past year. We were hoping to, but I'd love to go and fast pack the route and do it as soft rock over soft three days. Rock. Right. So, um, and then again, there you can use the, the hotels in the towns. So you don't even have to carry camping gear. Um, 
but also abroad. I think now I'm again, I'm opening my eyes up to some of these places like, for example, the uh, the Jordan Trail in the country of Jordan. Um, that one's a little bit tougher that, without getting too far in the weeds. It's in the desert. There's not a lot of water. You need to kind of hire somebody to help you with water drops or do your own water drops. Um, but again, maybe fast packing that over, you know, 20, whatever it would be, 15, 20 days max, hopefully. Um, and then there's there's countless other trails like that all over the world. And so with each with each one I do, I learn about four more and I add those to the list, um, not to mention the Alps. I mean, there's so many in the Alps, the different variations you can do. Um, the, we're hoping to get out to the Julian Alps this year to do uh, some some trekking there in Slovenia. And again, there's huts that we can use. So, yeah, I mean, there's just there's so many places all over the world. Um, the Sierras are incredible. I would love to get down there um, again. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, there's just I, I, I sometimes I'm at like it's like choice paralysis right. when I'm planning my year. There's just so much I could do. And again, I have the time, the freedom as far as time and, and finances that I could almost go anywhere in the world. So I'm very lucky that way. So that's where I come back to. I think about my audience. What, what is you know, what would be the best way for me to contribute to the YouTube community and to the trail running community? What route should I do? And sometimes that means doing the moment with the more popular ones. Like I think I really wanted to take do my take on UTMB and my take on the Tour de Mont Blanc. But then there's other routes where I, I want to do them because I don't think anybody's heard of them. And I think they should be exposed and they should have more, have a light shone on them, whether it's the country or the trail. So it's sometimes it's, it's looking at it from those two different ways. And so I am starting to, you know, this goes back to what we talked about earlier. I am trying to think from a perspective as much of what I want to do, but as much of what kind of story I want to tell and, and you know, what people would be most interested in seeing. I know like most of your films are, are obviously like POV, like they're, you're mm-hmm. the subject. Have you ever thought about trying to, uh, I guess, like build a story around someone else? Yeah, I mean, I did uh, I did a film about Gary Robbins a few years back called The Big Chill. We did that during during COVID, and that was about a, a backyard hundred miler he was doing in Chilliwack. Um, I, I was in there briefly as a character, a side character, but that was that was really a story about him. Um, you know, we we have filmmakers like Billy Yang and um, you know Ethan or, who are doing a great job, and, and countless others who I'm yeah. not mentioning, but who who are telling other people's stories, um, and I like doing that as well, but. I think that for now, at least, I think my differentiator is that I can tell my own story while running and I'm not winning, but I am usually in the, you know, top 10 percentile. And so I think that there's not a lot of people who can tell a story during a 200 miler. I've got a buddy named uh, Wes Plate and uh, uh, Carrie Ward, you know, good friends who they they can do it. Um, uh, And but stage racing i mean people you know when i'm running against these guys people are always kind of amazed they're they're like i'm having a hard time just finishing this thing and you're filming me doing it right so um but again it's it's the fact that i'm running while doing that that i'm actually racing i think that's the part that when i combine the filming and the racing together it, it makes it more of a challenge and i think it makes it a little bit unique so for now, I'm pretty focused on telling my own stories, um, but I will be probably filming Audrey doing a race in Switzerland, the Eiger Trail in, in July, and I do hope to feature more of her in the near future, but the difference there will be that she'll also be filming. So she'll be filming her POV, and then I'll be supplementing that with drone footage and aid station footage, so it's almost like an extension of the same approach that I'm doing with my races. That's cool. Yeah. And I think there's something to like featuring yourself uh, over time because people can really feel like they're developing a relationship with you, you know, and like they get to know you. Well, that's interesting that you mentioned that. That's something I've been thinking about more, which is that there's 
there's stories. Each film is a story, but then there's an arc that connects right. them all. And that is something where, yeah, again, you can watch. And, and I always try to, you know, a little bit strategically try to link. When I finish run, one race, I tease out that maybe this was just a training run for another. And I try to link them together. Um, but yeah, there's a progression you can see there. And that's exactly to flip it around. You know, if I was only making films about other runners, I feel like there'd be no connection. Those would just be almost random, disparate stories, which individually might be compelling, but there'd be no connection between them other than the fact that I happened to film them all. And so anything I do, I'd want to, I want it to be part of a, a greater arc. Um, so something that I probably might, would end up doing would be like maybe pacing somebody and telling that story of that runner, but from my perspective as their pacer. So I'd still be sort of involved and it would still fit into my overall story, my overall arc as a, as a runner. Kind of changing gears uh, a little bit. Uh, I know you've worked with Solomon for quite a while. How did that relationship yeah. start? Yeah, well, I, I started uh, working with Solomon as a store level athlete, like as an ambassador uh, here in Vancouver. The store actually has closed uh, since then, but unfortunately we don't have a Solomon store anymore here. Um, but yeah, I was just like a local kind of store level ambassador. I was helping lead some of their runs and, uh, volunteering at events. And that was actually right after I started trail running, really, it didn't take me too long to build that relationship. It's really about who, you know, at that level. And uh, I had a little bit of, um, you know, I'm, I'm a marketer by trade as well. Like, so that's sort of, I think I was able to talk the language and when it came to social media and things, I was able to add value. And then, um, after a few seasons, I was asked to, um, start working with the national team. So I'm technically like a Solomon. I mean, I think the program is called, uh, the, like the pro team in, in Canada and, um, uh, the pro squad. And so I work directly with the national team and especially now that's evolved with the, my YouTube channel actually being more of an international audience. I'm now also collaborating to a certain extent with the international team in Annecy. So, you know, it's, uh, I'll go there and pay, pay a visit maybe once a year and um, also get products sent to me directly from uh, NSC to test out. So that's evolved a little bit. And, um, you know, again, my, my audience on YouTube is mostly international. It's uh, maybe about 35% North America, you know, maybe 10, 15% Canada, the rest US. And then, um, and then other than that, it's, it's all European. And that's because of these races I'm doing in Europe, logically, like Tour de Jean and uh, UTMB. So, um, and a bit of an Asian audience as well. So, um, yeah, so, it, it, so Solomon's been a great partner and they've continued to support me, uh, financially and with gear. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, given that my audience is, is international, I do hope to continue to work with the international team on a larger level, but the challenge I have is that I'm not winning races. I'm not a podium runner and most sponsored athletes are podium runners. And usually they, they have a social media presence because of that. And they get press because of that. So I'm a little bit unique in that I have an audience, but not because I'm a fast runner, but, be, you know, I think I'm a, I'm a <laughs> competent runner. Totally. Um, but I, you know, I've never DNF'd, but I'm not winning those races, but, but I'm doing it while telling stories. But unfortunately there isn't a program for that. So, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a glass ceiling, unfortunately. Uh, so I have to get creative in how I work with other sponsors, um, other non-competing brands. And, um, that's been a learning process for me. Um, I, I'm trying to walk a line. I don't want to be too, you know, come off as being a shill for, you know, a bunch of products and brands, but I do need to pay for all this travel and things. And, um, 
you know, I, I do want this to be sustainable. I think we've seen a lot of creators come and go in not just the running space, but other areas where they haven't been able to monetize it. And it's one thing to do this as a hobby and a passion for as long as you can. But all it takes is for that person to, you know, maybe they have a kid or they get a new job and they say, I, I got to step away from this. But if this can become my full time income or our, I should say, both Audrey and I, um, then it becomes something that I can sustain for the next decade. Yeah. And I mean, getting back to your point of like not being uh, on the podium all the time, I think that like makes you more relatable, you know? Right, right. Yeah. Um, so I watched I like your... Th- I like to think so. I'll yeah, buy that. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, I watched your S-Lab Genesis review uh, and right. I, I saw that you took a tour of, of the Annecy factory, the Solomon yeah. headquarters, and kind of like talked to a lot of their designers about uh, what goes, what went into making that shoe. Um, what was mm-hmm. that experience like? Yeah, I mean, that was the second time I'd been to the design design center. It's a really cool place. Um, unfortunately, I don't I didn't get to show much of that footage because it is right, sort of, for obvious reasons. Yeah, um, I'm hoping one day to be able to do sort of a pull back the curtain video, but it would have to be working pretty closely with their legal team and stuff to, to get that through. But uh, yeah, the design center is really cool. You know, Solomon is unique in that they do their own R&D. And I think it's it's safe to say that a lot of brands that have come up over the years that have similar designs um, just kind of steal from Solomon and, and, and other brands who are doing a good job. There are other brands who do that as well. Um, but R&D is expensive. You know, testing is expensive. It, it takes a long time. So that shoe, the Genesis is a good example. That shoe is rated for about 800 kilometers as opposed to say 500, like most of the S-Lab models. It's made from uh, more durable materials. And that's the differentiator with that shoe. It's good for these long unsupported events. It's, you know, that's sort of the, the whole the whole positioning with that. But that means that they have to test it for seven or 800 kilometers anytime they change it. So they, they, they had one version. They send it out to half a dozen people to test. They get those shoes back and they look at where the wear and tear happened. They'd make another version. And of course, there's a month delay to get it from the factory. They send it out to their athletes, wait for them to run seven or seven. So you can see how that would take a couple of years. Um, and that's so and the longer the shoe is made to, to last for the longer that process is but they're not going to put a shoe out without having having tested it uh, multiple times through multiple iterations and and that goes for all of their products their packs all that kind of stuff and and the design center is i mean they have rooms where they stress test different materials and you know of course the ski gear as well has its own all of its own considerations um, so it's really neat to get it to get a look at, at that whole process and it really you know it makes me feel more invested in the brand it makes me feel better when i can see how the sausage is made um, i really do feel good about promoting the brand and and also hearing about some of the steps they're trying to take towards sustainability um, and that is a that's a big challenge for most brands i think especially these global brands because you know they're manufacturing in asia um, they are in this case, headquartered in the Alps. And a lot of their customers are, say, in North America. And there's a lot of shipping of materials and product that goes back and forth. And, you know, they're trying to, say, produce in in the Alps now locally some products. Uh, but again, they still have to ship to North America. And so there's just a lot. There's a lot. Um, it's a very complicated space. Um, I would say, you know, looking at uh, how normal is trying to disrupt that with their sustainability. And I think we're seeing that the prices reflect that. Um, as well being it's 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 very expensive to do it in the more in a sustainable way so you know i know solomon's probably finding a challenge there of walking a line between cost and sustainability at some point customers will just reject a price right. if it's too high uh, but it is interesting to see what the attempts they're making at that and they have a lot of stuff coming down the pipe that um, will hopefully address some of those concerns 
Yeah. And I think like from a consumer standpoint, if I know I'll be able to get, you know, twice as many miles out of a pair of shoes, I don't mind paying a little bit more for them. Yeah, exactly. And that's again, like the Genesis actually is, I think the most expensive shoe, but if it lasts you an extra 300 kilometers, right. uh, maybe paying an extra 20 bucks is worth it. It's like especially price per if, mile. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. So before I get you out of here, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, what you have on tap for 2023. Um, you yeah. mentioned some ongoing projects, but is there anything else we can keep an eye out for? Yeah, I've got, well, the two big projects, or I should say the three, the three big projects for me this year, um, starting out, uh, it will be the Bob Graham round in June. And that's going to be, uh, I'm, I'm really excited to tell that story and to, I hope, do the UK fell running community justice. Like that's, I want to make sure, you know, so I hope to, 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 to do them, do them, make them proud. Um, and then we'll be in Europe for pretty much all, all the summer. Um, in Switzerland in July, we're doing the Tour de Mont Blanc in August, but the next big project will probably be fast packing in Slovenia for a couple of weeks in late August. But that'll actually be training for then our first race, I should say, which is uh, the Pyrenees stage run. And Audrey and I are going to be running that together. So that's going to be different in the way that we are, we're racing together as a team. So we have to stay together. So that'll be unique. Um, normally, when we, do, when we have made films from both of our perspectives, we're, not, we're racing independently. We're not together. So that'll be fun. Um, for me, that's actually more of a training run, though. That's going to be Audrey's goal race. And for me, it's a training run then for Moab 240 in October. Cool. Yeah, so that's so I've done a couple of 200 milers now, but I've never done a US 200. And so this one, well, it's 240, but it's got a lot less elevation change. So I'm hoping I'm hoping it'll take me less time than the other ones took. And therefore, I won't have to suffer through as much sleep deprivation. But uh, I'm ready for, you know, I'm ready to put myself to the test. And also, I'll have the heat to deal with. Um, but we are working with a company who's going to provide us with a really cool uh, camper truck. So we're going to be down there for a couple of weeks, heat training and, and you know, training and sightseeing. And, and then doing the race, of course, Audrey will be crewing me in this vehicle. Uh, so that's going to make it really, really cool. Um, so that's my kind of everything's leading up to Moab. And I'm super excited to to yeah to just give it a shot again one of these really long races see what i see if i can apply everything i've learned over the last few years um and uh see how well i can do i don't know any we'll see awesome man yeah i think like that region is so like visually striking i can't wait to see what kind of film you uh you uh managed to pull off it's so cool i haven't actually been to moab itself like i've done a lot in you know in in utah and arizona but not i haven't actually been to moab so i'm super excited and uh you know, Candace, I'm told, puts on some great events. So I'm really excited to do one of her races uh, for the first time. And uh, of course, there's Bighorn and uh, a couple other ones there as well that she has that I could consider Tahoe 200 to be that that area is incredible. So, you know, who knows? Maybe 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 I'll fall back in love with the 200 plus mile distance. Awesome, man. Well, we'll uh, we'll follow along for sure. Yeah. Thanks for chatting with me. OK, thanks, Matt. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Jeff for the conversation. Thanks to Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from everyone here at Blister, please take good care of yourself, keep moving forward, and we'll talk to you again next week.